live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Hello, hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well. Uh, we're so excited to see everyone uh, hopping in to join us for uh, the fifth installment of our monthly conversation series on faith, uh, socialism, organizing, and, and policy. Uh, super excited to be in conversation with uh, tonight's uh, guest, who's a, a dear friend and someone who's thought uh, closely about these issues, uh, Reverend Sekou. Um, we've seen each other a number of different uh, places. I think the most recent one may have been um, when I was uh, executive director at Drum Major Institute and you were doing some organizing with Fellowship of Reconciliation, I believe it might have been. Um, uh, yes, yes. This is Dawn Ferguson Uprising. So, um, you know, just really uh, appreciate the chance to get the opportunity to connect again in public discussion and dialogue. Uh, as folks are coming, I just want to share a little bit of um, a sense of structure and flow for how we'll proceed. Uh, there is a um, Q&A box which you can direct your questions to, and uh, I'll try to weave them into the conversation throughout. Uh, we'll go from uh, 7.30, or so to about uh, 8.40, 8.45-ish, uh, and then we'll open up, um, excuse me, from now until about 8.20-ish, then we'll open up for Q&A, and then we'll we'll probably wrap up uh, around 8.45-ish, 8.50. So DSA is, in many ways, the nation's uh, leading socialist uh, political organization. Uh, DSA's core belief is that working people should govern the economy and society democratically to meet folks' needs uh, rather than organizing the economy on the basis of making profits for a few. Uh, DSA um, is notably a uh, political and activist organization, not a party. Uh, and as uh, Lawrence is uh, ably sharing, uh, we would encourage everyone who has not yet joined to go to um, dsausa.org slash join uh, so I'm issuing uh, uh, an altar call of sorts early, which I know is in inverse order for the way it usually happens. But uh, <laughs> oh, there, uh, Lawrence. Um, and, and the goal of, of DSA and similarly spirited groups is to really build a density of working class power so that we can shift our political economy towards workers uh, from all communities, including, of course, uh, black communities on, on every issue. That's, that's the North Star. And so to achieve this mission, uh, DSA members organize in campus and community chapters and everything from legislative to direct action, uh, fighting for uh, non-reformist reforms that empower working folks. Uh, so within this kind of matrix and history of DSA, there's a particular uh, stream that convenes us tonight uh, in the Religious Socialism Working Group. Uh, and Religious Socialism 
is a multi-faith tradition of folks working to uh, confront capitalism and democratize our economy. Uh, since July, uh, we've engaged through these monthly conversation series uh, over about, uh, I think it's 1,450 or so folks in conversation about this really unique inflection point where, where Muslim folks, Jewish folks, Christians, Buddhists, uh, people within healing and restorative justice spaces, uh, the movement for Black lives and so many other different nodes and foci are working to build a new society and doing that in a way that draws from the wellspring and ethical traditions. Uh, so let me uh, say a few words about um, a, a good brother, Reverend Seku. Um, he comes to us in this conversation um, as an artist, uh, somewhere between uh, a, a blues artist and uh, the, the beautiful uh, gut bucket traditions of, of Pentecostal uh, singing. Uh, an organic intellectual and, and theologian and author, uh, and perhaps especially Jermaine for tonight, um, someone who appreciates difficult conversations for, for social transformation. Um, I'm uh, Reverend Andrew Wilkes, uh, uh, come to this as a, a pastor, policy director, writer, uh, proud member of Religious Socialism's editorial group of DSA. Um, and I'm working my way up to the theme for tonight, which is the spirit of Black radical traditions. Uh, and I, I think I could say that um, perhaps in some ways, uh, everyone that, that's on this call, uh, and certainly Reverend Seku and I, um, begin this discussion with a deep appreciation for uh, what some have called the Black radical tradition uh, that includes uh, folks like um, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, the Trinidadian uh, intellectual uh, C.L.R. James, uh, folks like the author Richard Wright, uh, but also critical voices that too often are um, neglected when we talk specifically about the Black radical tradition. Um, I'm thinking of authors and activists like Angela Davis, uh, Claudia Vera Jones, who's talking about um, what we might consider a kind of proto-intersectionality in 1949, when she's talking about an end to the neglect of the problems of Black women. Um, thinking of folks like Barbara Smith from the Combahee River Collective. Uh, and then, of course, you have folks like um, Alice Walker, who's talking about democratic socialist womanism, and Reverend George Washington Woodbay, who represents a kind of Black Baptist socialism. Uh, so again, super excited, uh, Reverend Sekou, to be in conversation with you tonight. And um, want to hop into it with this question. Um, the one formal way of, of talking about the Black radical tradition begins with um, a book that I would highly recommend to everyone if, if you haven't yet read it, uh, Cedric Robertson's uh, Black Marxism text, uh, which is subtitled uh, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. Um, there may be some debate as to whether or not that is uh, the origin point or not, but certainly it's the most uh, popularized uh, book as it relates to the Black radical tradition. Uh, and so in many ways, this conversation is indebted to Robinson's path-breaking work. Uh, but we want to build on it by highlighting some of the spiritual traditions of the Black radical tradition. Uh, and so, uh, Reverend Seku, the first question I want to uh, put on the table for us is, uh, how would you describe the nexus of Black radical traditions and the various ways that the spirit um, 
broadly considered, right, intersects with that black radical tradition? Well, first, you know, it's always an honor to be in conversation with you, brother. And I know I just want to name the mighty work that you and Reverend Gabby are doing over at the Double of Exposure uh, uh, experience in terms of a congregation that is grounded thoroughly in the uh, richness and the culture of the Black church tradition uh, while expanding uh, its borders uh, to appeal not only to millennials, but also appeal to the best of the radical tradition. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, for that work, I uh, slide by on Sunday mornings every now and uh, Sunday evenings every now and then and hang out with y'all. So just thank, so thank you. Uh, I would want to be. I, I would want to make two. Uh, uh, a point to two uh, nodes uh, in creating, uh, perhaps three uh, nodes in creating a trajectory of the spirit of the black radical tradition. And so particularly out of the Christian context, uh, I would want to begin in Mark. I would begin in Mark, uh, Mark 1 and 1, when it says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As uh, a, in the Markian text, this is a fundamental critique of the way in which uh, the empire was the only, uh, Caesar was the only one who was allowed to write a gospel. Uh, and, and was the uh, uh, and considered himself the son of God, having uh, said that his father was God and demanded tribute. So I want to we'll want to begin with the world's most famous Palestinian uh, as a way to assess and as a guidepost for us to make some sense of the spirit of the black radical tradition uh, and that radical Christianity. I would argue is Christianity. Uh, and that what we have endured over the last two millennia is a consistent undermining of the radical edge of this tradition that called itself the way uh, that said, sell your all and care for those who uh, work next and beside you, that found its currency among the working poor, among fishermen, those who lived on the outside of the community, considered uh, unpure uh, and ultimately a tradition uh, that ends up with its leader being crucified. But we Christians believe something happened on Easter morning and that the empire did not have the last word. So I would begin with understanding Jesus as God making a choice as the myth goes to be born in, in, among an unimportant people in an unimportant part of the world, living under occupation to a teenage mother and that that peasant that handyman would ultimately go on and defeat the empire. So I begin there as one note. The second note I would want to begin with is that the first African who said no before he got, uh, before he or she got on the boat, who resisted, who jumped off of uh, boats, uh, committing suicide, uh, those who rebelled, uh, the, the the slave rebellions. When we think about Gabriel Prosser, Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, all being preachers who heard a word from God that said that the system of slavery was immoral and it must be destroyed. And so I would want to begin there in the uh, the way in which people of African descent uh, came to wrestle critically with uh, what it meant to be human and, and a deployment of their faith to violently often resist the empire. And then the third note, note I will begin in Preston, Arkansas, uh, in the Arkansas Delta, where I'm from, with the founding of the Church of God in Christ, of which I am mm -hmm. so proud to be uh, a third generation ordained elder in that rich tradition that you can't join in. 
you got yeah. two people on there. <laughs> and that tradition begins in the Arkansas Delta, where there are three dominant features uh, in the at the turn of the century. You got the mm-hmm. highest number of lynchings in the country, being one of them being the most violent, the Elaine riots, in which 230 African-Americans were uh, killed, murdered, lynched, and, pro- and over a million dollars of property stolen, right? And on, uh, in, in addition to the, uh, the high levels of lynching, you got the highest number of blues men, uh, particularly those that Al Lomax records. Over uh, of the 80, he records the majority of them 90% of them are from that region of the country, the Arkansas and Mississippi Delta. So the highest number of Bruce production. And then the third being the highest number of socialists organized among black people in the country, right? So what is happening that you see the, uh, you see the construction of a Pentecostalism, which is about otherworldliness, which is about inter- scripture still speaking to itself and claims on a utopia, right? And the deployment of language, of, of tongues of fire, Mm-hmm. Socialist organizing, uh, in terms of when we look at the uh, Southern Tenants Union, which was involved, and then the organizing of railroad workers, uh, and the blues, which mm-hmm. is an articulation of the suffering, but not the suffering having in the last word. So we begin with Jesus of Nazareth, come to the ways in which Africans who uh, deployed Christianity to resist slavery, and then the third, the way it manifests itself 100 years ago in the Arkansas Delta in a region that uh, was wrestling with articulating a different kind of eschaton and a rejection of the teleological objectivity that was deployed against their bodies uh, post-slavery. And so yeah. those three nodes are the ways in which I would attempt to track the spirit of the Black radical tradition, particularly coming out of the trist- Christian tradition. I, I appreciate that 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 point, and and I want to hop in here because while, while there's certainly a rich multi-dimensional um, Christian stream of the Black radical tradition, th- there's also a a rich uh, tradition, certainly of of the arts and folks who have a deep um, melodious ethical perspective, but who may mm. not be theists at all. Right. So I'm I'm thinking of Ella Baker, who's organizing cooperatives in New York City um, mm-hmm. before SCLC. This is before SNCC. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of A. Philip Randolph, right? The famed labor leader. He and Chandler Owen are publishing The Messenger in Harlem. And he's uh-huh. organizing among Pentecostal churches, right? So That's so right. That's, that's right. There's an important story there. But then you also think, and this is particularly the bridge when we talk about the arts as a way to bring folks from different religious traditions and folks who have an appreciation for uh, transcendence and standing outside of oneself for sustenance and inspiration, uh-huh. but may not be religious. I'm thinking of Langston Hughes, who stands out as someone who, um, by many accounts, um, it is an atheist. But, you know, he gives us I too sing America. Langston mm-hmm. Hughes is a part of a league of socialist poets who are helping to rhapsodize about revolution, right? In a mm-hmm. way that bring a deep sense of inspiration. So, and, and I begin there because I think it's important to have a pluralistic, polycentric view of the spirit mm-hmm. of Black radical tradition that has space for a Ella Baker, space for Martin King, uh, mm-hmm. but also space for a Malcolm, you know, mm-hmm. also space for uh, a Randolph. Let, let, let me um, mm-hmm. see if we can, can keep moving further in the conversation this way. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder, what does it look like to hold space for um, this kind of 
uh, many-sided pluralistic sense of the spirit in black radical traditions, particularly in a moment where there is a understandable distrust in some regards of formally religious uh, expressions of what it looks like to, to be radical. And I, I guess a part of what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to drive at here is I think there's a, a tension between um, religious liberalism, which seeks the beloved community, and mm -hmm. the spirit of Black radical traditions, which is pushing in a different direction. Uh, how do we bring all the folks together pushing in a different direction? See, this is interesting to me because I actually think this is an argument among elites. That's not, I don't think this is the way in which I, I'm subject to engaged in and participating in a particular kind of conversation in terms of like, because I spend a lot of time in movement spaces, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Whereby people have a deep disdain with queer folks who have been alienated and isolated from, uh, 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 not from mosque, temple, synagogue is for oftentimes leftist Jewish uh, folk who are, uh, may have a different opinion about Palestine than they nana. Right, so mm -hmm. there's a different kind of way. So I want to name that. But at the same time, when we think about the cultural habits of the, the people we claim that we want to organize and work alongside, working mm -hmm. people, poor people, they're deeply religious. They're not having this debate. If you go inside a black organized, like even if you look at the, the uh, uh, if you go inside black working class and cultural spaces, if you go inside a black community, there are Muslims on the corner who are selling newspapers that grandmama gone by. Right, go, grandmama gone by, and she don't believe in all that mess. And so, what I want to do yes, but is, I, I, I want to push, push, push you again. Though, are, are you suggesting that folks who that only uh, elite folks have conversations about um, how religion is sometimes an ally and sometimes, in some regards, and, a, and a no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in working class spaces, much of this has already been resolved themselves. Meaning that- okay, That's a fair point. Uh, a different that, that, point, that, but a fair point. Yeah, all right, that's, that's all I'm saying. That I'm just saying that, that poor people and working class people are deeply, many of them are deeply religious already. The question is how do we, who are part of the managerial class as intellectuals and artists and writers, right? Uh, what is our relationship and proximity to the ways in which those people are already organizing their lives? For instance, you know this, the left often says we need to organize the black church. Well, I'm like, have you ever been to a communion service? Because we run that with military precision. The churches are already organized. The question mm -hmm. is, how do we turn that organization and be in relationship to articulate a vision and understanding of the world, right? So when I need security, it's the nation of Islam who protects this Pentecostal preacher, right? That, that there's a way in which, in terms of black spaces and black communal spaces, that they have already kind of resolved that resolved a way in which they are negotiating a multi-plurality, right? When we look at the elections, uh, even though we're talking about bourgeois reforms into a bourgeois democracy, every sector of the Black community, Black churches, Black masons, Black sororities, Black fraternities, uh, uh, and, and I would even argue that most Black religious organizations are left of center because they begin with a revolutionary notion inside the American empire, which is that Black people are human. That's a revolutionary notion in America, right? And so given that inside, uh, uh, in, uh, given inside uh, religious tradition, given what happens inside religious uh, black communities already, I mm -hmm. think there's been some resolution of the matter 
though it may not necessarily be theological. And then secondly, uh, yeah, because I, I, we never get a chance to fight, so I want to fight. Let me hop in right here. Friday, a collegial debate, which I think is important. So, so for instance, let's take the conversation that you see having uh, in black communities, but I think they're analog in many other communities oh, yeah. as well. That's what I'm getting at in the tension uh, between liberalism and radicalism. So mm-hmm. you, you hear black folks from a variety of different um, neighborhood sectors talking about buying back the block, right? Talking yeah. about a kind of black capitalism, which has its precedence in Nixon running ads and Jet yeah. its precedence in uh, you know, you think about a soul city happening then, folks from the Black Power Movement doing essentially a Black capitalist development project uh-huh. that are brought up to the present in uh, Trump's platinum plan in 2020. And the mm-hmm. way that you see everyone from, you know, local business persons to rappers to um, cultural workers of various sorts justifying this project is that if you don't own anything, you don't have a stake in American society, which is fundamentally a commitment to private property rights as a way of being taken seriously politically. That, that's a liberal mm-hmm. argument that mm-hmm. has purchased even among poor and working class people. So, so the question I'm putting on the table is, what does it look like to, um, to think alongside those existing conversations and maybe in the language of what uh, Alden Morris says in the origins of the civil rights movement, to radicalize the cultural potentials of black traditions so that we can move in a much more socialist direction. Well, I would argue like, for instance, we had that precedence with King, who is a democratic socialist, right? When mm-hmm. he meets with uh, CLR James in London, when he's coming back from the inauguration of a socialist, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, right, right. Is that uh, he says that, and uh, CLR James says of that meeting in his diaries that it was obvious that King believed in uh, believed in the socialist project while rejecting dialectical materialism as primary, right, uh, as sole. Uh, that is the distinction that Nkuma yep. makes, right? That matter is uh, primary but is not sole. In part because Nkrumah knew he wasn't going to get them Ashanti to put them stools down. That he understood, <laughs> right? When he, right, that he understood that. that and he also, right, he understood that he knew he had seen as a, Nkrumah had seen as a child when the Ashanti dance around the stool, it only rains on them. Don't rain on nobody else. He says, look, oh, well, I know I done went got this fancy education where they didn't sent me off in Europe and over here and uh, over at Lincoln University where he's encountered a black church tradition. Right. So mm-hmm. the issue is that, that 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 so that's one Two, King understood uh, 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 as a democratic socialist. He understood and coming out of the first the second internationalist, a discourse on the United Front. So what are the ways in which people are? So I think of movement uh, as as ecologies, mm-hmm. right, versus uh, versus adversarial. I'm talking Mao now is that in terms of and, and Lenin, the ways in which how do we ignore the backward sexes and how do we under, organize a kind of movable middle, right, or Mao around the questions of that there's uh, adversarial contradictions and non-adversarial contradictions, right? Mm-hmm. So. So how are we engaging 
in communities around a variety of issues uh, that uh, that have ideological conditions and that we honor those con contradictions. We highlight those con contradictions, but we work in solidarity with them, right? So for instance, I'm thinking of two examples. One, Gaston down in Birmingham, who's on the city, uh, who's on the uh, only black person on the Birmingham City Council, who's uh, mm -hmm. also gives King a place to stay. And not city mm -hmm. council, but the uh, chamber of conference. But gives King as a state. King is a socialist organizing off the time alongside an open socialist, Bayard Russell, who had been a member of the Congress yep. League. Right. So Quaker spirituality. Mm -hmm. right, so what I'm saying is that what what is our flexiveness? Well, we're articulating uh, uh, an eschaton of democratic socialists. But how are we walking along with people along the way? Right. And at the same time, not doing it in a Machiavellian sense, because something might get a hold to you when you sing one of them hymns. Right. That like. Right. Right. That they're, they're, that the I don't want to be dismissive of my grandmother who may not fully understand socialist discourse, who may have capitalist leanings. Right. Oh, but she can sing a hymn and call on Zion and something happened when the clan is surrounding you. you, you right. And in. This current iteration. I'm following you. You see what I'm saying? So that so that's what I want to name. So I'm agreeing with you that there are these capitalist forces inside our communities, but I don't want to make them one dimensional. I don't want to reduce them to only that. But how are we in creative tension and dialogue with them to be able to push them to a different uh, a, a, a discourse? I, I think that's a, a powerful point that you raise because resisting one dimensionality uh, takes us beyond a flat, crude reading of class struggle, because there's a way to talk about class struggle where you have, um, you know, basically an opposition of labor and capital. And those who have just a little bit of property are thought of as the enemy, rather than perhaps uh, a managerial professional class that um, aspires to be uh, at the commanding heights of the economy, as, as Marx might put it, but it is in fact, they really are part of the working class. Yeah. And so when you talk about um, the potentiality, when you talk about uh, resisting um, a kind of one-sided view of, of folks in, in black communities and, and perhaps in um, all communities, we might extrapolate. I think that's an important point to put on the table. It leads mm -hmm. to, to, to another question. Um, you know, I, I, I think a part of the challenge is, uh, and I'm thinking of E. Franklin Frazier's um, uh, The Black Bourgeoisie, where he talks about how uh, there's a danger of having um, a culture of make-believe, where you have um, a sense that reform and conversations alone will get us to a future where everybody has healthcare, everybody has a right to education that's recognized, everybody has a place to lay their heads down at, at night. So how, how do we do the kind of movement ecology work uh, that I think is at the best of what uh, Claudia Vera Jones is arguing for, the best of what Robinson is arguing for, but um, have a merited um, holding at bay of the fact that um, if you have 
I'm trying to figure out the best way to, to put this. Um, if we obscure that there are in fact competing interests in all communities, including black communities, um, I wonder if that opens up the pathway for someone like uh, a silver tongued Senator from the land of Lincoln to talk liberation, but to govern reformists. Mm -hmm. right? Well, I would ask, also govern as a neoliberal, not just as a reformist, right? Mm -hmm. Govern as a neoliberal, right? We want to be clear uh, that you, I know you, you weren't talking about Lincoln. But mm -hmm. <laughs> As, right. as, as, as he does, right, as Obama would. But the, yeah, the point yeah, that I'm getting right. at, the, the language of, of ecology, it's, it would seem, could get a little bit slippery in terms of calling everything radical. And George uh, no, James no. makes... No, no, that's not what I'm not. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm saying is that, that, that I'm just saying that the lines are... And, and, and I'm just saying that people are a lot more porous and complex Right, God. Then, uh, then, then we often live like, right, we don't, we don't leave, right. So the issue is that oftentimes the comrades, right, are, are, are more interested in being right than base building work, right? So the question for me is what is the base? Yep. Who do you actually represent? For instance, when we look at the election, what was telling to us about the election, right? particularly among the black managerial class who are either ultimately, mm -hmm. ultimately supported Warren or Bernie, neither had the capacity to convince the masses of black people that the revolutionary option was not only viable, that it was winnable. And so black voters made pragmatic choices. Now, if you're hanging out in the juke joints that I hang out in in Memphis, in Big S's, and in uh, Wild Bills, where you can get a, uh, they smoke cigarettes in the inside, and you can buy a 40 ounce for two, three dollars. Mm -hmm. And where people are in there with their uniforms. If you're listening to their, if they're listening to the blues, uh, and you're listening to the debates that they're having, they agree with Bernie's program. They just don't trust white folks to agree with it. So they mm -hmm. they, they they chose the liberal option. And so to me, that's an indictment on me as an organizer that I have not done the work that is necessary to convince the masses of my people that there is a revolutionary option and that that revolutionary option is viable and in, 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 if not winnable uh, in, in the electoral politics, right? Now, when we look at local levels, that looks different. When we look at AOC, when we look at my dear sister, Corey Bush, uh, who I was tear gassed alongside in Ferguson, right? When we, uh, 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 or Sister Nikita down there in Charlottesville, who's the mayor. When we look at the local options, that the revolutionary option becomes viable and, and winnable, and you can see, and you can see people making moves, right? But I think part of that is how do we, as organizers on the left, or earn the trust of our people? So this is why the church, the mosque. Uh, are essential. I argue the church is mo is primary in part because one, I see myself as an evangelist trying to evangelize Christianity over to uh, uh, over to a more socialist discourse. But also, those spaces are places where you build networks and bonds of solidarity and trust. Mm. And, and what you're articulating is, is an argument in many ways that that Cornell West makes in, in social theory that uh, yeah. religion for reasons of principle, but also for reasons of strategy, is a pathway towards radicalizing society. I, I, I want to um, pull out into um, 
a macro question, your, your point, which I think is a good one, which is that um, the distrust, which has a long history and proof points of distrust, uh, and that being the distrust that black folk have, that white liberals um, have their best interests at mind, uh, is a distrust we can trace through um, IWW, we can trace it through Eugene Debs being great on class, being terrible on questions of race. Uh, so, so there's a long history of distrust of both white liberals and white socialists. So, so the question might be, what, what might be some of the resources within um, this kind of spirit of black radical traditions that can help um, black folks as well as uh, all folks secondarily um, opt for a much more egalitarian political economy, such that Medicare for all, such that, um, you know, housing as a human right and not just a nice to have becomes viable options. Because that's what distinguishes in many ways America's political culture uh, from the political culture of other places where they are not egalitarian societies, but they at least have gotten past the point of recognizing that healthcare uh, for everybody, all residents, ought to be just kind of a, a basic starting point. So what are the spiritual resources in the Black radical tradition for pushing back against white supremacy? I would, I think those spiritual resources are, for me, again, and the reason why, right, I am, um, I, I, I do want to say that I do believe that, that you know, you know, Christianity does not have a monopoly on truth. So I want to name that while I am a cleric. That's an important point to say. Right, but it does not have a monopoly on truth, right, and that we can look to other spiritual resources. So for, we can look to Islam when it says, A'udhu billah, when it says, Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim. All Muslim gatherings and, and statements begin, I seek refuge against Satan, the great deceiver. It is naming the darkness. Then the next one is that God is most merciful and most kind. It is naming the darkness, but the darkness don't have the last word, right? Or is it Namyori and Geiko and uh, Nito Shosha and Budams? I devote myself to the mystic laws of cause and effect through sound, which is about one's behavior. Or in Jewish tradition, it's Takum Alam, that we're going to rebuild, repair, and earth. And central to that is Jubilee. Or we can look to my soulmate, who's wrong in Algeria, but right on so much, the great Albert Camus who says that the artist must never side with the makers of history, but rather those who are the victims of it. That sounds like Matthew 25, 35 to me, such what you've done unto the least of these, so you've done it unto me. And so I think religious traditions across the board have a set of, a set of spiritual resources that can be pulled upon uh, that help us make some sense of the world that can make the world a more just and equitable place. And particularly within the framework of the religious traditions, not only is it in the biblical stories, particularly for me, I've been teaching uh, Chad Myers, Binding the Strong Man, uh, in our Bible study. Our first one, 400 people from around the world join. And that means that there's a hunger among movement people, not only for pragmatic and tactical, uh, uh, discursive and uh, uh, ep epistemological framework to, to talk to uh, religious mm -hmm. people about organizing, but also there's some spiritual resources. Yeah. Right. So Kwame Ture, who named me, said, who was an atheist, right, who said two definitive things to me. He was like, in Trinidad, as a kid, we went to church. And then after church, we went into the woods and we did our own thing. 
right? That that was them pulling upon the traditional uh, African religions that and, and practices that have been syncretized and made their way over to the Caribbean. And then the second thing yep. he told me, the second thing he said to me uh, was uh, when we were in a house in Mississippi doing registration uh, um, and a the clan surrounded the house mm-hmm. and was shooting in the house and them old sharecroppers who we were with would say I love the Lord he heard my cry Come on, don't, don't, don't make me quick and quick I'm Baptist <laughs> right they, they start lining at him yeah and the clan would leave yeah right which, which there's is a kind of conjuring right yes that's right. There's a so there's also it's not just Machiavellian, but there's some spiritual resources there, right? Right, yeah. right. It's like right. It is is that right? It is that push over and against the uh, the material conditions and transcending those material conditions, right? So I understand Sartre's meditation in the myth of Sisyphus on meditation on suicide. I understand that the material conditions are such that when we look at them, they should kill ourselves. But we come from a people who understand legislative defeats, but existential victories, right? That's yeah. part of who we are as black. That's part of the black radical tradition. It's not simply because we've read some white boy out of German who got something serious to say. I got, I've got all three uh, cap, uh, uh, volumes of capital sitting on my desk now. Mm-hmm. I'm reading them for my dissertation. But also, yeah, I, but also there but, is a spiritual weaponry and a spiritual power that we hunger for. And I'll say this last note on it, that spiritual power and spiritual weaponry that people are hungry for is evident to me in terms of protest culture. Because a lot of times with protests, they ain't got no target. It's just the fact that we're engaging in ritual of resistance in community, that we're singing songs, that we're deploying our bodies in such a way. I would argue it's like Durkheim's notion of collective effervescence, which can be mirrored to a Black Pentecostal or a low Baptist worship service. Yeah. Right. And so, the, so, so I want to not only name the like we can talk about what books to read, liberation theology. Uh, uh, I do workshops. There's an embodied level. cultural element to this. It's, it's your point. I, I think that's an important point. And so, want to weave in some questions even before we make the formal turn. Uh, and one question, which is in the chat, I, I think it may be a, a, a dear uh, colleague and friend who, who's raising this question. So I, I'm going to take the, the guess. I think it's maybe Carmen uh, Dixon. She, she's raising the point about how too often you make this point, Reverend Seku, political education is elitist. Uh, it's also added here, ableist as well. And so the question on the table is, uh, and I'm going to try to bridge to our conversation, what are the cultural and ancestral practices organizers need to return return to in order to meet our people where they are. Um, And so when we talk about the spirit of black radical traditions, I think the first turn towards our people, and this is to your point, Seku, is to not have to go to Friedrich Engels necessarily, to not have to necessarily go to to Karl Marx uh, or any number of other continental European socialists. We can dig within our own traditions for grassroots theorists, but not only that move, the, the point here in terms of cultural and ancestral practices, when we're talking about lining hymns, when we're talking about how we remember uh, ancestors still being with us, when we talk about that as a cloud of witnesses, 
whether we think about that in terms of protest culture, as you mentioned. Uh, but I think there's also something powerful um, when we talk about cultural and ancestral practices. I, I think there's a, a strong sense of recovery of, uh, of, of, of breathing exercises, of meditation, which you mentioned, and folks really engaging in we might even say horizontalist ways, having encounters of transcendence that prefigure um, a horizontalist demand in the economy, a horizontalist demand in religion, a horizontalist demand in politics. Because if you can have these kind of collective um, unmediated encounters to some extent uh, in nature, through the arts, through breathing, through meditation, uh, what else might be possible, right? Uh, and so it creates a sense of um, the commons that I think is a powerful bridge to um, mm -hmm. a kind of socialist political economy in a radical sort of way. Um, let me get this other question uh, that's on the table. Um, how do we organize um, the churches? And I'm going to broaden that to say um, faith communities generally, including churches, uh, to build power for um, a kind of democratic socialism? Um, I want to put that question on the table. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder the churches are already organized. The Let's say organized is, further. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So the question is, what is your relationship to those churches? So it's oftentimes, you know, white folk come to me and they say, you know, they done been to them workshops, you know, the ones that teach you how not to be racist no more. You know, they went to them anti-racism workshops and, you know, and they telling me how woke they are. And so I said, mm-hmm. So my next question is, have you ever been to a black funeral? Does someone love you enough that when they put their mama in the ground, they want you standing next to them? So it's, mm. that, it's that kind of deep relationality, right? So mm. it's like what I what I it's among uh the SDF folks, you know, the Klumskis out of Chicago. I, I think I hear you distinguishing deep relationality from a cheap sense of solidarity. Is, is that yes. A, is that yes. say more yes. about the deep relationality? I mean, meaning that one so for instance, because I'm a child of SNCC, mm -hmm. right? If I get out of order, Ruby Sales gonna call me. Mm. Oh, I heard this boy. You understand? Because I'm in deep relationship because when Ruby Sells is in, is 100 miles from me, I'm going to go see about it and I'm going to carry her bags. Right? Right? And as a black preacher, you know about that, right? You Before mm. we get ordained, it's some folk we got to walk with. We got to tote their bags. And they ain't always right. Oh, but they going to drop a jewel. And we just pick that jewel up and we put it in our pocket, Right? And so, like, there are cultural habits and practices internal to these communities that in terms of what is your actual relationship with. Like, in Memphis, one of the powerful things about a group called Memphis for All, which the comrades are running, is that I can walk in any bar, any Black bar in Memphis, with these white organizers, and they know them. Mm. Right? They know that I'm, you know, how your, uh, I'm so sorry to hear about your daddy dying. How your mm. mom, right? When Big S, the owner of uh, Sam's, uh, 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 old uh, uh, juke joint in Memphis, uh, is featured in my 
um, video of Mississippi. It's the old man's hand who I shake in there in that video. When we go in, right, when, when he passed, the organizers went to see about that family. Right, that's a deep, that's deep relationship. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And so it's not just a kind of Machiavellian approach, right? It's not about, you know, uh, now I'm not saying the queer folks and the women uh, of folks who are historically other, that they need to go in these religious spaces and be subject to the arbitrary violence uh, discursively and physically and the sexual harassment. I'm not saying, that's not what I'm saying. But if you are going to be an organizer, I want to know what your base is. Who yeah. are you in relationship to? And so if you're in relationship with churches, if you're in relationship with people, right? So for instance, in, a church, in my denomination, the Church of God in Christ, when I served Bishop Norman Quick in New York City, yep. Bishop Quick would be like, you know, uh, the mothers would be like, now baby, take me slow. Because I'd be queering the text and all of that. But we trust you. Because when little man got in trouble, you went to see about him. Which you went the, to the, the and and so William Sloan Coffin, and I think this is what the, uh, the, the 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 movement right is that the pastoral authorizes the prophetic. Do you actually care about people? Do you actually love them? Are your networks of bond and care real and thick? Do you? Do, 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 are they? When you talk about the denial of health care, are there people you know? And yeah. that you grieve with them. And so for me, to, to me, one way to begin that kind of organization, right? And a lot of it's happening. Mike McBride. At, is, go ahead. At, at, so I, I want to affirm that um, the Black radical tradition, plural, um, needs to be rooted in folks who are organizing on the ground. But I also want to suggest that not only there, I think uh, because I think a part of what we have to, to do is to celebrate and valorize organizing on the ground and also push, and I think you alluded here earlier, uh, folks in professional managerial places to radicalize their work as well. Because folks who are economists may or may not be on the front lines. Folks who are regional planners, urban planners may or may not be on the front lines. Folks who are lawmakers may or may not be on. But if there's this ecology that you're talking about and there's accountability and deep relationality, we can still get things like a freedom budget that Randolph and King were talking about. We can still have politicians of the caliber of Pauli Murray's and Ella Baker's who made city council runs, right? And oftentimes we don't talk about that aspect of their history and their trajectory. So this is not to oppose and have a simple dichotomy, it's to say, since you brought up uh, Mao, let a thousand flowers bloom was, was one of his axioms. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that kind of generous spirit gets us where we, we might want to go. Yeah. A I, I do want to say, though, I do think that, and it could be because our unique situatedness within the American left as black socialist preachers, right? Ain't a whole lot of us, right? And But also because we are pastors, right? I serve a congregation here in Seattle, Valley mm -hmm. Mountain. Mm -hmm. uh, is that because we are pastors, that allows us to have uh, that daily contact with the doing and the suffering of people. 
as well as because of our proclivities uh, intellectually and otherwise, we have access to the economists and that there's a way in which as, as black preachers are good organizers who are kind of moving between, not mediating, but moving between everyday people and those who uh, are e either managerial or part of the elite class. And so, and so, so for me, I, so yeah. I, I, so I want to name my positionality and I, actually want to impose that positionality on anyone who would dare to be an organizer, meaning that you should be able to be, or claim that you're writing about black people, poor people, that you do need to be in relationship with actual people. I, so, I think yes and, um, and what I mean by yes and is, I, I, think, I think there's a, 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 a potential danger and not a potential real danger and not being in relationship with poor folks with working class folks for sure i think there's also a danger in taking one's relationship or lack of relationship to be a stand-in for the very contradictory uh positions that poor working class folk are in across the board and so sometimes you have anecdotes standing in for for, for theorizing and so in, in that sense um, I'm trying to make a case for insurgent intellectual life. I think of someone like Kianga Yamada Taylor, who I think has done a tremendous amount of work to extend the Black radical tradition uh, in writing how we get free from Black Lives Matter to Black liberation. She also is, as far as I understand, organizing uh, in certain traditions as well. But even if she, she were not, I, I don't think it renders the work invalid. Um, because we're not in proximity. I, I do think there needs to be a sense of not, um, I think there's grave danger and kind of trying to be a voice for the voiceless because there's the kind of violence yeah. that happens there. But I think there's a tension between um, a substantive radical representational politics, which I think intellectuals do, uh, and the deep participatory politics that you're arguing for that has a deep relationality. I think those are overlapping things. Is that a fair point? No, no, no. I'm just saying, I, my sense is that what that's what you and I do. Right. So, right, right. So in, in the sense that, right, so as an organizer, and I don't consider myself an activist, I'll make the distinction. As an mm -hmm. organizer, uh, I'm going to be in the street with the masses of people in Memphis. Uh, the work that I still support there is about base building work among the working poor and workers. And so work that we're doing around uh, cafeteria workers, the largest is going to be the largest campaign against uh, in the city of Memphis since the sanitation workers, 1200 uh, 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 cafeteria workers struggling for a decent living wage, mostly poor black women. Right. It is that work. Right. Uh, but to me, as an intellectual, that is who authorizes me. Right. So from the like. Right. So so it's like when I'm on tour. And, you know, you get them reviews in the magazines and that kind of thing. And that's nice. And the crowds holler at you. But, you know, we play these big festivals, 10, 20,000 folks screaming or whatever. But when I come off that stage and one of them old blues men say, boy, you got it. That's all the validation I need. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is that what are the what are the ways in which are that 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 uh, you used a fancy word. You what did you call it? Insurgent intellectual life. 
I'm, I'm thinking of Bill Hooks and, and, and Cornell West. Yeah. yeah, right, right, right. So that right. So when you think about that, is that I want I, I want to constantly be pushing for because I believe the other option is at least my experience. I'm risking me if I'm wrong. That the, I'm wrong. The dominant option for intellectual work for who matters in the public discourse for who gets the funding and that kind of stuff are not poor and working people. And so mm-hmm. I want to always be raising that contradiction, right? Right. And, and constantly pushing that contradiction, perhaps even at moments to the moment of offense, right? Because, because my base is working class people. And so I'm going to be yeah. defending them at all times. Uh, and, 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 and then I think I, as you was talking, it made me just think that that word we longed a long time ago It's just dialectics, baby. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so there's a question on, on the table of, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts about the the prosperity gospel? Um, and I'm, I'm going to take a, a an attempt at being provocative. I, I think the, the prosperity gospel is at its, this is an extraordinarily generous interpretation of prosperity gospel. I think the whole project is wrong root and branch. However, I think <laughs> the basic idea of the prosperity gospel, the, the notion that abundance and plenty is intended for all, uh, if that was a collectively oriented project rather than an ownership, private property driven project, that could be the kind of, it could be the seedlings and the embryonic stages of suggesting that uh, wealth value and decision-making power should not be concentrated among the top. And so that folks are wanting to have a conversation about material prosperity and not turning inward only and firstly, as sometimes you see even in liberal religious cultures, I think is an instinct that could potentially move in the right direction. The problem, of course, is that with word of faith and confessional cultures, you have a naming and claiming that often is a kind of consumerism and an acquisitive capitalism that ends up being very violent, very appropriation oriented. But but if we were to say, for instance, that, uh, and this is a, that basically that, that working, uh, what's the name of that song? Um, People make the world go round, and if you know people make the world go round, they ought to be able to share in the fruits of their labor. That that could be a more radical direction to take the instincts. What what, what would you say? Yeah. Curious to hear your, your take. Yeah, that's the most generous reading I never heard. You write it was generous. It was just <laughs> you you just you in that one you like Big Mama fixing a plate. <laughs> and say, man, I just really appreciate uh, your epistemology and the way your your brain works around a lot of these questions. So I, even though I uh, disagree with that generous reading, I appreciate both the attempt and uh, that there's a way in which you signified on the a priori that I think is important that shouldn't be lost. Again, while disagreeing, I think I mean, one of the things is that we want to situate the prosperity gospel within the framework of the United States, which has always saw itself as a city on a hill, paradiso, uh, uh, light among nations, right? So that's a way in which it begins 
its origins of itself. So it begins with the kind of mess messianic sensibility that gets played out in Manifest Destiny and these mm -hmm. 800 bases around the world, right? So that's part of who America is. But we see the advent of Jesus, the notion of Jesus as a personal savior, right? If I want to, if I can give a little historiography of this thing, is that Jesus as a personal savior begins at the turn of the century around the Gilded Age that is, that, that is motivated by the Horatio Algiers narrative in which a Harvard-educated yeah, Harvard lawyer writes novels about rags to riches, and that, be, and that is mirrored in the articulation of uh, the gospel and that Jesus becomes individualized and it's about individual behavior, individual responsibility, no, no notions of collective. And then we see it, and then we see it beginning to emerge in the late 50s with Norman Vincent Peale uh, and others mm -hmm. and, and runs all the way through Reverend Ike, through Co Kenneth Copeland and all the others. So I want to talk about that. For what, it, for what it's worth, uh, Trump's family uh, was a member at Norman. Uh, middle of Middle Collegiate. I mean, not Marble Collegiate. Uh, Marble Collegiate. Marble Collegiate was a member, right? So, so right. So it runs through there, and then at the same time, you see the rise of the mega church, the rise of the uh, prosperity gospel and word of faith, as a is mirrors the rise of the multinational corporation. And so that's when we see Hosanna Praise Ministries and all of these churches like we'll send you a screen. You, you know, you start basically churches become franchises of this particular kind of gospel, right? Of that is uh, individualistic. Pa churches stop, pastors stop being pastors. They become CEOs, right? Churches are more concerned about building malls than they are building souls, right? And many churches you walk in, ain't no cross, but you know, all of that, right? Yep. Uh, kind so of Walmart yeah, right, right. So you see all, so the churches are mirrored of that, right? And probably not since the first 300 years of Christianity, if we want to jump all the way back, we ain't been right since then, right? Uh, right, right. And then it even gets worse when Luther sides with uh, the imperial powers over against the peasant rebellions and the Anabaptists. So this contradiction had always been there. It is just dominant in the context of the United States. The interesting thing is that part of the, the what the prosperity gospel does is it just reinforces the things that you see and hear every day. That's why it has so much power. You turn on the TV, they say, get, you know, life's get rich and cribs and this, buy this and it'll make you happy. And if you buy this Mercedes, you'll get a pretty girl or, you know what I'm saying? It's all, it's always in the advertising. It's always, re, it's being reinforced in a variety of ways in which the, the, the lure of the prosperity gospel becomes seductive. But I think it's that, I think it's really uh, a feature of a certain kind of Reaganism that ran through the churches vis-a-vis uh, -vis the multinational corporation. And then the last piece for me is what are the ways in which what is interesting to me is that the not only the theological damage that it does, but the way in which, if I might be Pentecostal, it, it, that it blasphemes against the Holy Ghost in this sense. You don't have choirs, which are contested queer spaces where the choir director is as normative that the choir director is gay. 
And that choir directing is a queer aesthetic, the snapping of the fingers, the long flowing robes. I'm not saying churches ain't homophobic. I'm just saying there was spaces in our churches for queer folks to function, right? So no choir, but you got a praise team. That's, that's, that's total quality management, which was a buzzword among the corporations in the 1980s about small sizing, managing the event and the production, right? Uh, yep. That churches oftentimes spend more time, money on cameras than they do on their homeless programs, right? So what I'm saying is that, and, and so perhaps, and then the way in which the praise and worship industry began uh, to, uh, to ignore uh, 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 the power of lament that emerges out of the black religious tradition. Oprah Hendricks writes about this beautifully in an essay, right? And so, yeah, so I, so I wanna also talk about, not only does it does a, a kind of work to affirm the superstructure, but it, at the same time, it undermines the spiritual weaponry to resist. Yeah, because it suggests that there's nothing to resist in the first place. So we're, we're making the, 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 the formal uh, transition to, to, to Q&A now. Uh, and I see you all have already begun to, to drop them in the, uh, the chat box. Um, and we'll, we'll be here. We, we, we got a little bit of time to, to go back and forth. The, the quick thing I want to, to, to add there where I agree with you deeply is that I think a part of the most um, evil effects of the prosperity gospel is it suggests that structural inequality and domination in society is something that can be overcome by psychological effort. That if you just focus your mind enough on acquiring certain skills, on um, you know, naming and claiming, calling and hauling, that, that if you worship with enough intensity, that all of the structures of domination, white supremacy, capitalist extraction, exploitation, whatever other words we want to use, um, that you can surpass these things. And, and it creates a kind of um, erasure of power and principalities, to put it in, in, in biblical language, that, that's particularly violent for folks' attempts uh, at collective self um Determination. But I just want to say this is that also not only does it do that, it actually valorizes and sanctifies the powers. Right. So it's not just simply not only can you not only can you kind of treat you can be rich, too. Right. It's not I don't think it's transcendent. I actually think it's acquiescence dressed up as transcendent. Right. That is Lacanian that the fiction becomes real, that the fiction that this is a good system, the fiction that this system is working and it is just and it is moral uh, begin, becomes reified because it says that you you can get a fancy car if you tithe into this ministry, if you sit the under these- not so bad if you can be rich too. That That's it, that's, that's it. Like I that, think that's- that, That's I the, to me, that it valorizes it. It says that look, Donald Trump is rich because he's blessed of God. Yep. Right, 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 right. So and not and only if he does it game the system, surely he's a template for a conquistador kind of masculinity. Yes. I, I think you're right that, that valorizes. Let, let, let me hurry us to, to, to the questions. Um, and I think that's a very subtle point that you made that is important. Uh, acquiescence and, and not transcendence. Uh, 
so there's a, a question here. How do we organize our community? And I presume here, um, this means uh, black communities in, in particular, uh, so that this consensus of needing white folks support uh, is no longer the priority. Um, the, the, the point I want to make here, there I want, want to bring you in. I, I think it's important to affirm um, the and and live from. I'll, I'll say that the, the history that folks like Jessica Gordon Nimbard have charted in Collective Courage, the history of Afri African American cooperatives. Uh, when we are collectively running the land, exercising self determination with our labor, doing community land trusts, worker co-ops. Uh, pushing for public banks, and we can go on and on and on. But that helps to create a different social basis of power so that you don't have donor-client uh, patron relationships. I, I think that's one part of it, uh, because you have a situation where so often um, various nonprofit and community-driven efforts are ultimately unable to outstrip the demands of their annual budget planning. Um, so, so that's one thought. Hop in. Mm. So, it, it, like, I think there are ways in which, uh, uh, like, so Bill Fletcher uh, often says that black people who think they can do it by themselves can't do math. Right. Well, the fact that we live in the place that we live in, that there are ways in which the math and that, that like there are ways in which like black collective responsibility uh, and notions of cooperative are always subject to the arbitrary violence, whether it be when you look at the Tulsa Wall Street, which is a, a clearly uh, black Wall Street, Tulsa, clearly a black capitalist uh, venture is still subject to the arbitrary violence and the insecurity of whites uh, when they see confront black success and have to deal with the, uh, 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 the, the fact that oftentimes that the psychological wages uh, of whiteness are unjust even for them to deploy the boys' notion in the black reconstruction. So that's one. When I think about my own family's history, that our family had a place called Casey Settlement in Arkansas that was burned down to the Klan, had its own churches, own bank, own post office, and that kind of thing. So that's just the reality. And so the question is not only uh, uh, should, like, in, in, in terms of I was raised in a small black village in the Arkansas Delta where people love me, we care for each other, we killed the pig, everybody in that community ate, wasn't no homelessness around there in that little old town with 11 houses and mm -hmm. 35 people, right? So I, I understand what black, everything I am is because a woman named Miss Roberta who couldn't write her name taught me how to be an intellectual because she made me read to her, right? So. So in that sense, I understand Again, the way that he's relationality that, that you're right. Right. So in that sense, so I think that is important. But also, how do we be grounded in that wellspring of black cultural identity and collective organizing while in relationship to white allies? And, mm -hmm. and what, I'm sorry. Okay. And I want to not use the word allies. I want to use the word that Ruby Sales uses, Dr. Ruby Sales. Uh, freedom fighters, the white freedom fighters, alongside see not mm -hmm. only their spirit, not only their political uh, 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 ideology at work in their solidarity, but how do they develop that deep sense of uh, relationality that emerges out of the understanding that they are in moral danger because of white supremacy? So that's a different kind of orientation. So yes, we organize our community. They're always organizing. And the ways in which can we flip that organizing, right? So for instance, in the Elaine riots, it's the Masons 
yep. right, who are organizing and that lead the rebellion and help store the guns to fight the white farmers because it would have been more people who would have died if it wasn't for that, right? That yeah. like that that Kwame Ture would say that in uh at Howard they used to dog the fraternities and the sororities and they said we were stupid and then we figured out we made it a competition. Well 15 alphas got arrested last week. How many Q's gonna get arrested this week, right? So that what are the ways in which we are we are turning the organizational energy inside our communities, right? In such a yeah. way that we uh, we can turn it toward more socialist aims while being transformed. Because I never want to be an evangelical organizer, meaning that I'm bringing something uh, uh, to the people. People know what they need. My granddaddy would pray a prayer. He would say, Lord, yeah. I don't want you to come and do nothing. I just want to be but, where but, you're already working. That, 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 that's a good word. And, and, and I signify an, an appreciation of, of the word. I, I'm, we're going to move into a bit more of a, of a lightning round sort of response. I, I, I say that for you and for me. But I want to make sure we can get some, some more of these, these questions. Um, so there's one on the table, which um, I uh, would love for you to comment on briefly. Um, you made a distinction between being an organizer and an activist. Uh, a question um, for you is elaborate a bit more. Well, an activist is a lone soldier, an individual who may or may, uh, who oftentimes is not, who is more interested in an issue than it is people. Right. So activists are kind of long, you know, long soldiers that are moving around and that kind of thing. Organizers are grounded in community. They are accountable to groups of people on a daily basis. They are in living in relationship and that they are being transformed. Right. And so myself. Right. So while I have visibility. uh, uh, Which is fleeting, you know, sometimes I'm hot, sometimes I'm not. Right. Uh, While I have visibility, I am accountable to SNCC. I'm accountable to whatever con- congregation I'm pastoring. I'm accountable to the folks, to the low wage workers that we do work with in Memphis, right? And so I'm an organizer. I want to be in their lives. I want to go to their parties, be in relationship, go to their funerals, laugh with them, party with them, fight with them, fuss with them, right? Cook with them. Uh, yeah. And so that I mean, so is that sense as an organizer? For instance, when I, uh, when we're called into a town. Uh, to do these militant, nonviolent, civil disobedience trainings, the first thing I do is cook dinner. And I find, I ask around, so tell me who the organizers don't like each other. And they tell me, well, I, they don't, I can't be in the room with this person. If it's no, you know, it's usually, if it's ideological or, you know, it's nothing major, I call them all to where I'm staying. And we cook. And I sit like my grandmama. Now, baby, you take some oil and you put about that much in that, in, in, in that, in the bottom of that pot. And the folks who don't like each other, I have them cooking with one another. And and, yeah. and because that's organizing, right? I saw my grandmother do it. My uncles or something, we didn't get into it. She sit in the kitchen. Come on in here now, baby. You go yeah. get them greens and you wash them, right? So organizers are, are, are always observing the ecology of movement spaces while building deep relationships with people. And so that's distinct from an activist who oftentimes I feel like is more concerned with an issue than they are people. That, that's a helpful um, and, and, and grounded distinction. Uh, another question here, um, in, in, in your respective minds, what's driven the, the black church to conservatism? Um, would res- respond here, I, I think, 
black churches like a lot of um, religious institutions, but let's talk specifically about black churches, um, have plural, um, contradictory uh, traditions within them. You you have, um, you know, black churches that uh, you got whoever the, the the black churches are that that sit around the uh, the desk with Trump. Uh, those are part of black church traditions. You have black church traditions that um, lean in communist directions, not simply socialists. Uh, Robin D.G. Kelly and Hammer and Ho talks about Alabama communist traditions and how you got people translating communist commitments in Bible verses and pamphlets and sermons. So, and everywhere in between. Um, any, any thoughts you, you, you have there? I mean, well, one, I think one of the works, particularly the womanists have pointed this out to us that oftentimes, like, I, I would want to, I'm going to make some assumptions about what they mean about conservatism. Oftentimes around, say, uh, around uh, uh, conservatism, around sexual ethics has to do with the ways in which uh, for the majority of the history of Black people in the United States, we were openly and can remain openly subject to the arbitrary sexual violence of white men. Right. Which which uh, the womanists have argued that. So, so that's why some of that there's a certain kind of uh, sexual conservatism that emerges, which is a reaction to that. We don't do that. It's about bodily saying no is about bodily autonomy. Right. And this this is not me. This is what the womanists have uh, 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 instructed us. Um, uh, uh, it may be insisting the wilderness, uh, I, I, but I may be misquoting someone uh, or Douglas's work. Yeah. Uh, and so so that's that. Uh, and then also a certain kind of conservatism is that religion is as religion does. Chris, the vast majority of religions are right wing, reactionary and conservative. That's across the board. When we look at the Hindu uh, nationalism and murdering Buddhists and Muslims in uh, India. Uh, when we look at the uh, uh, the various uh, Sharia forces and Islamic traditions uh, throughout uh, uh, the Arab and Muslim world, right? Uh, whether it be the Catholic Church's uh, uh, monopoly on uh, uh, reproductive justice discourses uh, in um, in Latin America, while at the same time there are leftists. Uh, radical and prophetic forces who claim the heart of the faith, but cl uh, who claim the heart of the faith, but since uh, heart of the tradition, but live on the edges of the denominational affiliations, right? And so, mm -hmm. I, I so I think so. In that sense, black churches are not that they're not more unique. But I, what I do hear in that question is uh, a historiography of mythology. And, uh, and, and I'm not attacking who's saying that. I'm talking about in a kind of general ethosphere when we talk about the black church. One of the things is that we lie to young people and we tell them everybody over 40 marched with Martin Luther King. And of all the oh. people who said they was on that bridge, was on that bridge when they uh, 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 when King marched, uh, the daggum thing would have collapsed, right? It's just the reality is that, you know, James Lawson told me less than 10% of any clergy in any church in any uh, city participated in the civil rights movement. So one of the things is that Given the heroic, prophetic, and valid efforts of Black churches, Black preachers, backed by the masses of Black people, oftentimes with women running the infrastructure of those movement spaces, there's an outsized mythology about Black churches when in reality, they doing what they always done, right? Right. 
Yes. And so I think that, and then lastly, I'm often reminded of the Sadducees and Pharisees, and we want to caution on any notions of anti-Semitism that are grounded in uh, the Christian history, but the Sadducees and Pharisees in the Bible often get a bad rap, but a lot of times what they're doing is just trying to negotiate the best way they can with the powers on the behalf of their people. Now, yeah. are they exploiting? Are they? Yes, I'm not saying that, no exploitation, but a lot of times there's like, all right, you can't make our people, uh, Mr. Pharaoh, you can't, I mean, Mr. Uh, 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 Caesar, you can't make our people walk more than a mile with your stuff, right? You, uh, uh, and this is part of what uh, Jesus is responding to. Uh, 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 um, there are ways in which people are making compromises because they actually think that they're making the decisions because oftentimes... Yeah many of the leadership understands the implications of the violence, right? That comes yes. on people. And so for, so for Sadducees and Pharisees who have seen Jewish rebellions lead to thousands of their country, uh, 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 men and women and folk crucified, negotiation becomes palatable and it completely becomes understandable. And so I just want to name about human humanizing. Yeah, um, I, 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 I just want to name that. That's all. I'm not, I don't agree with it, but I understand how they arrive at the conclusion. Of I, 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 I appreciate the, the, the point that, that you're raising there. Um, uh, one question is, um, are the previous four conversations available online? They they are. Uh, so just want to respond to that. There's a powerful question that uh, is put on the table here, uh, which is is this. It says, there seems to be a focus in our conversation so far on the working class, but how do you understand the Black radical tradition's approach to the excluded classes? And, they, and the question here is, for instance, uh, folks who may be incarcerated, unhoused, undocumented, um, I mentioned um, as a way of kind of entering into this question, Joy James makes the point, a uh, scholar at um, Williams College, that there is a, hopefully this is a distinction she'd accept, uh, tension between reform-minded Black radicals and the revolutionary tradition of Black radicalism. Uh, and that without a focus on what folks who are, um, speaking, um, writing, uh, rhapsodizing, however they may be communicating, who are unhoused, who are undocumented, who may be writing from detention centers and jail cells. We, we can't fully embody the black radical tradition. So I think she's, she's on to a point there. And I, I would want to, to say that uh, to, to this question, I think it's important rather than having a voice for the voiceless discourse, which oftentimes is the purchase of black liberalism and sometimes quiet as it's kept um black radical talk um i think it's important to have um an emphasis on deliberative democracy and by that i simply mean everybody is in a space with their political voice um and their attempts to organize collectively can gain power and influence as a course rather than the folks speaking on their stead and a kind of black custodial class politics on behalf of. Hop in there, what, what would you say? I think part of it is the ways in which, and I, I'm, is the ways in which that 
uh, the black managerial class is in this current iteration as great a distance from the Mac, from the black working class and the black poor. Mm -hmm. My experience is Michael Brown and Eric Gardner probably couldn't belong to most of the Black Lives Matters chapters around the country. That you won't find a lot of black working class men and black poor men, right? Because we have to understand with police violence, the vast majority of those who are killed by the police are black poor and who were typically unemployed before, or they were low wage workers like Fidel. Uh, they were uh, uh, working class folks like Philando Castile, right? I want to know. And the reason why, I go ahead. Let me just hop in quickly. Uh, the, the, the question on the table is, is, is not just folks in this particular question, who are, are poor and working class, but folks who may be outside of the wage labor system altogether. Um, what, who, what, what I'm, yeah. So what I'm saying is that if those folks who are working class or poor and working class would be seemingly more easily absorbed into movement infrastructures, if they are excluded. Okay, I hear Then what we're talking about Right, those other folks. So I'm just saying, I think it is something that that, that I oftentimes I think that exclusion that you're describing is often mediated because this is the first time that the dominant leadership in the black community is primary nonprofit driven and punditry. And they tend to be folks with master's degrees who who are not in close proximity and relationship with the poor with, with poor blacks right and and so i think that something about a lack of connectedness creates that contradiction that you are that is being raised in the question right um, and so and so uh, I, I just want to name that from there i think we should be in conversations with the uh uh the soledad brothers uh the folks uh when we think about was it Two years ago, no, last year, all the prison uprisings that were happening around the country, right, with masses of prisoners doing organizing in Alabama, not only on East Coast, but in Southern states and that kind of thing. And what are the ways in which we live that, lift that up? Now, one of the things is that we got to get through the stigma, right, that is often moralized by the church that if you're in jail, you did something wrong. Yep. Right. Right. And the way in which sin is a social construct that it is often valorized by the law. Uh, Ashton Crawley does some work on this around uh, Pentecostal theology and notions of the uh, deserving poor. Right. And that kind of thing. And so we got to get through that. But I think that there is something in the current managerial class that does not have proximity to folks in and out of jail, in and out of prison, and that kind of thing, that creates that kind of distance. So I think they should be engaged. It should be raised. Uh, we should push against the ways in which ableism keeps people from coming to meetings. Uh, uh, or this, and this was weird to me, uh, uh, living on the East Coast for, you know, for 15 years, is uh, the way in which ain't uh ain't no food at the meetings and ain't and ain't and then like i learned to organize because they just took me to the meeting wasn't no child care i just ran around the meeting i knew how to run do robert's rules of order by six you know what i mean and so what are the ways in which we're uh uh kind of 
deprofessionalizing, declinicalizing, deprivatizing, organizing spaces to ensure that mm -hmm. other people can take part in their own liberation. I love love that point. And on that, we're, we're gonna 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 wrap up here. Uh, what a rich, wide ranging, uh, powerful conversation. Um, Want to issue a quick call to action before we wrap up, and then we'd love for you to to, to say a few words before we hop off as well. Um, first, uh, would encourage folks who are on this call and looking for a space. Uh, to organize and grow in organizing traditions uh, rather than um, solitary activism, to, to your point earlier, uh, would encourage folks to, to think about um, joining DSA and, and becoming members. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about DSA, obviously no organization is perfect, but I think DSA is, is hearing and seeking to move beyond the, um, the, the kind of predominance of whiteness within its ranks. And whether we're talking about um, what Afro-Socialist Caucus is doing, whether we're talking about um, revising what leadership looks like, I think DSA is, is trying to move in noteworthy directions. Of course, folks can organize from multiple places, but if you're looking for a home and you don't have a home, right? Uh, <laughs> to join uh, DSA, and thank you, Lawrence. Um, and while I'm at it, thank you, uh, Fran, Ape, and Maxine for your incredible uh, leadership. Uh, and commitment to multiracial democracy and, and, and socialist work. Um, deep pleasure, Reverend Sacred, to be in conversation with you. Let me let you get the last word. Well, as always, it's always uh, good to talk to you, brother. We should do this more. Um, um, and uh, I'm always indebted to the Democratic Socialists of America uh, you know, for having space for me to help think through some of these questions uh uh as uh well as the heroic effort that it has done uh in uh making a turn into toward electoral politics as an organizing tactic not a rule but as an organizing tactic and in, in a strategy of building our bigger bases in memphis tennessee dsa knocked on twenty thousand doors Right. So that, that there's a level uh, between the primaries uh, and the uh, general. This is a, a level of commitment and organizing, knocking on doors in communities that are not their own. So I just want to name uh, the heroic work uh, as the largest uh, and most significant socialist organization uh, in the U.S. And then I, I, I would just want I would want to say to people, if I might end on a pastoral note, because when it's all said and done, I'm just an old Pentecostal preacher and a country boy, uh, is that I know things look real weird now uh, with a soft coup being attempted, uh, us doing this conversation in the midst of a pandemic where people feel isolated uh, and alienated and then uh, this desire to do more. And so I'm yeah. gonna tell you what my grandfather and grandmother, uh, who had third grade educations, but the most sophisticated theologians that I ever met, uh, I would just want to say that uh, this, that you are enough. Um, if that, that who you are in the world is enough, that you reject the lie of capitalism that tells you you have to be working yourself to the bone, even for the movement, that you have to be uh, uh, holding some sensibility of, of, of being right at all times. It's okay to be wrong 
and you're still enough. And if I was in my church, I would tell you what I uh, tell our church that comes out of the uh, Franciscan benediction. If there be a God, may she grant you with enough foolishness to believe that you are enough and that you can change things others say can't be changed. Thank you, dear brother. It's always good to talk to you. My, my. On that note, um, good night to all and to all a good night. Take care, everyone. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you liked what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.